Sometimes it can feel as if every day there's some new technology set to revolutionize our lives. Whether it's AI, a new social media platform, or the latest iPhone, digital technology marches ever on, promising us more convenience, more knowledge, more everything. My guest today is Samuel James, and in our fascinating conversation, he reflects on the ways that new digital technologies themselves, not just the content that we consume through them, shape us at a profound level. Whether it's how we think about our relationships, how we engage with information, or even how we define the good life. Drawing on the insights of influential thinkers like Marshall McLuhan and Nicholas Carr, Samuel sets forth a distinctly Christian theology of technology, one that is profoundly realistic about its power, both for good and evil. Samuel James is an associate acquisitions editor at Crossway and the author of a regular newsletter on the intersection of Christianity, technology, and culture. His new book with Crossway is called Digital Liturgies, Rediscovering Christian Wisdom in an Online Age. Let's get started. Well, Samuel, thank you for joining me again on the Crossway Podcast. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. So today we're going to talk about technology and our lives as Christians and the ways that that technology impacts us, perhaps in in counterintuitive ways, in ways that we don't often think of. Uh, But before we kind of jump into some of that, the the meat of that, uh, probably the biggest news right now in the world of digital tech over the past few months has been the rise of ChatGPT, this AI-powered chatbot that everyone's been playing with and experimenting with these days. I wonder if you could just, for those who aren't familiar, explain briefly what is ChatGPT and why has it taken the online world by storm? Yeah. ChatGPT, to the best of my understanding, is an artificial intelligence software. And the way this works is that this program uh, receives just millions upon millions upon probably billions of bytes of information that people put into it to program it how to respond. And the end result is that a normal person can go to the software and say, write me a short story featuring a famous pastor. And lo and behold, you'll get about 600 words of a moderately amusing short story featuring this pastor talking and behaving kind of in a way that he might in real life. Mm. So this machine is somewhat intelligent. It can uh, recognize patterns. It can memorize information. And then you can kind of get it to do or give you uh, amusing things in response to your prompts. So I think a lot of people are just kind of right now realizing, hey, like this software is very, very capable of creating things that I find amusing. Uh, So you don't have to like go find a a specific uh, bot written by a specific individual. It's this one program that's Mm. just got so much information loaded into it that it knows about just about anything imaginable. Yeah. And and it seems like one of the interesting things about it that's so uh, remarkable uh, for many people is that it can kind of understand very natural language. You can kind of just talk right. to it like you would a friend, ask it questions like you would someone that you were sitting across for the, the table from. And yet it then can construct and synthesize information in really surprising, even seemingly creative ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one of the one of the weird things about it is that you can ask ChatGPT, what's a Christ, what should a Christian's perspective on technology be? 
and it will respond with something that could easily pass for a blog post or an article at a major Christian website. Mm. Like it's, it's well written. It's, you know, maybe not super insightful, but it's vocabulary and syntax is right. It's grasp of Christian theology is more or less okay. So it's just, yeah, it's strange to see a a machine basically doing this, mm. but that's where we are right now. Yeah. So as you've have you played with it at all? Yeah, yourself? a little bit. So what have some of, what are some of the the prompts that you've given to it that you found interesting? Yeah. So I think I actually think I did the technology one just to see if it was going to plagiarize me at all, but, <laughs> but it didn't. It was actually pretty good. Um, I think I've asked it to do like silly stuff, like write about John Piper being a superhero or something like that, you know, and it's, I mean, it's actually comes out decently entertaining. And then there's some prompts that interestingly, like it won't respond to, like if you say, why should abortion be legal? Uh, I I don't know about that specific one, but there are questions like that, that it'll say, I'm just a learning software. Mm. I can't, you know, there are like, there are limits that the creators have put on it. Right. It not for lack of ability. Like it, it could clearly answer that question, but it's obviously not in these companies' best interest to hmm. program that. Yeah, it's so interesting that ChatGPT, and then there's other there's other AI software out there along the lines of image generation. Uh, yeah. There's things like mid-journey. And so you put in a prompt, and it can create photorealistic images that looks like something, a photo someone took, but it's completely manufactured. And the other day I was browsing Twitter and I came across this picture. I scrolled past a picture of Pope Francis. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was wearing this big, white, puffy coat. And I stopped for a minute. I think the, the, the caption was something like Pope Francis, you know, staying warm in the cold or something. And I stopped for a minute because it was this huge, puffy coat. And I thought, that's kind of a funny look for the Pope. I wouldn't expect that. But then I just kept scrolling and kind of <laughs> and didn't think anything else of it. And it was only days later that I read that that image was actually completely artificial. It, right. was, it was manufactured. He didn't actually wear that coat. He was that picture was never actually taken. And it's funny because that is such a uh, relatively insignificant and uh, meaningless deception. It didn't really affect anything about how I thought. Uh, and yet it's kind of stuck with me because I think mm-hmm. it's the first time that. I've been deceived in a way that I didn't even know it was happening. Mm -hmm. So how do you think about that? How does maybe that experience and the experience with AI that we're seeing more and more, how does that fit into some of the things that you're talking about in your new book? Yeah, it's it's a good question. When you read the history of the internet and the history of kind of personal computing, this type of technology has been talked about since the very beginning. The idea that you could have a computer program or kind of a network of computer programs that were so intelligent that they could basically replace human personality in a sense. That actually is very old and very mm. integral to the uh, the history of the internet. You can go back and read the history of like the whole earth catalog and kind of the people that influenced Google and Apple, like Steve Jobs and Larry Page. And they were caught up in this, this 1960s counterculture that was also pretty philosophically learned. And they were, they were very influenced by the idea that, hey, computing can get us to a place where we transcend human personality. Mm. And, and I talk a little bit about that in the book. But I think 
I think AI is the most obvious example of that that we've seen kind of hit the broad market where it's clear that the upshot of this technology is that you can replace human beings with this. Mm. So you may not need to hire a human copywriter anymore. The machine can do it. You may not need to hire a human uh, movie writer or a novelist. A computer can simply do this. And, and these conversations are happening, especially in higher ed right now, where the question is, okay, if what student is actually going to write a research paper if they can simply send a prompt to chat GPT and get back 1500 words, 2000 words. Uh, and so the idea of replacing human beings with technology, I think strikes at the idea that is central to the book, which is that technology shapes us simply by virtue of what it is. Every technology simply by virtue of what it is says that this should be possible. The jet airplane, tells you that you should be able to travel from Louisville, Kentucky to Wheaton, Illinois in just over an hour, right? And so it's not simply that that technology is available to you. It's that now it has recalibrated, maybe over a few years, but it's recalibrated cultural expectations to, to say that actually is part of the good life. That is part of an effective company. That is part of what it means to be traveled or whatever it is. Um, so technology tells us what the good life is simply by virtue of what it, of what it can do and, and of the role that it seeks to fill in our lives. And so when you're looking at something like AI, it's fairly obvious that AI's version of the good life, if you really interrogate it, is hey, human beings don't have to do any of this. Mm -hmm. Like we don't have to think. All we have to do is build machines that are capable of thinking for us. And then we can get on with whatever we're supposed to do after we stop thinking, which I'm not sure some of these philosophers of tech have answered that question uh, mm. very satisfactorily. Um, well, and that's one of the most perplexing and in some ways scary things about AI in particular is it even more than other technologies that have come before, I think for most of us, for many of us, it feels uh, like something we don't understand. I don't know how a computer could do the things that it's doing. And you have this interesting quote in the book. You say, our inability to really comprehend the technological revolution that has permanently altered nearly all of our lives is a profound spiritual, emotional, and cultural dilemma. And again, AI feels like it's perhaps the, the ultimate example of that. And as you said before, it's burst onto the cultural consciousness in a way that maybe other technologies have kind of slid under the radar. Has that been your experience? And do you think there is something maybe about the the AI revolution around us that could help wake us up perhaps to the power of technology to shape the way that we think? Absolutely. I think, now I think that's possible. Whether that will happen, I don't know. Uh, I th certainly think it's possible. And, you know, one of the things that, like I said, higher education has to answer is how do we teach the value of writing and research when there are tools available that can do this? So, and I think Alan Jacobs and Andy Crouch have both kind of written along these lines, but the challenge now is for higher ed to figure out what's the purpose of education. Because if the purpose of education is to get people to produce a certain kind of product that's consumable, game over. Yeah, because like, we can already do that. Because we can do that. This is it. And so if students think that the goal of their education is to basically just put word salad on a word document or on a research paper, then game over. Or regurgitate right? facts. Or regurgitate facts. Yeah. Uh, and so like journalism, 
So, you know, if the goal of journalism is simply to string words together to support a narrative that maybe borrows some, some statistics or whatever, game over. Computers can do that. So we're, half, we're having to answer the question, what are these things for? Hmm. What is education for? What is journalism for? And so I think as we answer those questions, some people are going to realize that, wait a minute, the way we've been viewing and handling technology up to this point has actually put us in a corner with AI because we've been allowing technology to determine our values, to determine our priorities up to a certain point. And now what we're seeing is that once you feed the beast, there's no moderating it. Mm. Speak more to how technology has determined our values. You talked about jet technology kind of changes our expectations of what the good life could be or what's possible unpack that further how do some of the how does the phone in my pocket shape the values that i have or the things that i view as good in day-to-day -day life yeah absolutely it's a great question so digital technology is mostly premised on the idea that no matter where you are no matter who you are no matter where you're sitting um, you should be able to be omnipresent in a sort of sense. So for example, even though I am a 34 year old man sitting here in Wheaton, Illinois, and pretty limited in the kinds of conversations that I can have right now, the kind of information I have access to, well, if I pull out my phone, I can now be part of any conversation. I can now access just about any information that I want. I can basically escape my embodied giving, embodied givenness. I can escape it through technology. So the idea is that I have I have a body, I have a location, and that is limiting me in some way. And the premise of a lot of internet technology, and this is kind of the transhumanist philosophy that I talk about in the book that I think is showing up, especially with AI, is the idea that you shouldn't have to be limited by your body. You shouldn't have to be limited by your physical self. You should be able to enter the metaverse. You should be able to join a uh, conversation on Twitter between people you don't know on a topic you don't really care about in a, in a context that's completely remote to you. So as we engage those technologies, it, it tells us that this is what will make us happy. If we can just consume more content or if we can be part of somewhere else or some time else with other people, then, we, then we'll be mm. relaxed and we'll be happy. And that has a shape on our values because that's the kind of thing that we are prioritizing when we just give ourselves to these digital apps. It's a way of escaping our, our, human, our humanness mm -hmm. um, because the alternative is that we might have to be limited in the kinds of things that we can see, the kinds of things that we can know, and the kinds of things that we can participate in. Yeah, but I could see someone listening to that and saying, I don't know about transhumanism, but I'm thinking about my mom, my, my ailing mom. She lives over on the West Coast, and uh, maybe she's old and, and not doing very well. And um, through things like FaceTime, I can call her up and I can see her sure. and I can I can be present with her and that's a good thing. That is that has helped her, it's helped me. Or I think of COVID and the way that so many of us, all of us to some extent, were affected by the lack of interaction with other humans and the ability to work from home and sure. do video calls and all of that um, was uh, I would probably some people would see that as an unalloyed good. That was a, a wonderful thing that we had. So why why would you point that out as potentially a bad thing that we need to be careful about. Yeah, so there's a distinction to be made between something that's capable of doing good things and something that is totally neutral. So 
technology is capable of doing amazing things. It is fantastic that we are able to connect with friends and family members in remote parts of the world in seconds. That is fantastic. It is fantastic that I'm able to live in one city and work for a company that's located in a different city. That is a blessing mm. and, and just something to be treasured and be thankful for. That does not necessarily mean, though, that these digital technologies are completely neutral and simply give you whatever you put into it. As we were saying before, when you think about technology holistically, you realize that everything a technology is and does says that this is desirable. This should be done. And so when we're talking about these apps that help us transcend our bodies or help us be in another place mentally while we're physically in a different place, we have to recognize that while that can be a blessing, it can also be a contributor to a worldview mm. or a, a feeling that we have toward reality that may take us places we don't intend to go. Huh. And so rather than seeing technology as completely neutral or rather than seeing technology as completely evil, I think there's an alternative. We can see technology as a non-neutral, conscious-shaping thing that nonetheless can give us great blessings, but then also requires us to bring Christian wisdom up against these technologies and to locate ourselves correctly in how we relate mm. to them. So yeah, it's, it's, you're saying it's impossible for something like a phone to give us the ability to do a good thing, FaceTime with a relative far away. And yet even that ability, that good ability that results in a good re kind of experience for us, uh, even spiritually a good thing, can nevertheless have this shaping power over our lives that could end up being harmful. Absolutely. And I think it's important for Christians to recognize that when we say this, we're not saying that because technology has a shaping effect on you, it's sinful. Because all technology has All technology us. has a shaping effect. Yeah. And that's part of the point of Marshall McLuhan and Neil Postman and all these kind of technological theorists who said, look, there is no such thing as neutral technology because human beings make technology and that technology speaks back to culture by mm. virtue of what it can do. So when we say that technology is not neutral, we're not saying that you're sinful for using it. We're not saying that we have to get rid of all of our tech. We're not putting the technological Pandora back in its box. Yeah, it's not we're, possible it's to not possible. And even if it were possible, I don't even think biblically you could make a case that that would be desirable. I think instead, what we have to do is we have to engage technology as what it is. And instead of simply saying, well, it doesn't matter how I use this technology, as long as I'm never looking at anything bad or never using it to go anywhere bad, we need to recognize that this is actually shaping me to be a specific kind of person. And that specific kind of person may not be the same kind of person that scripture is shaping us to be. Hmm. Yeah. You note that throughout human history, humans have created and tried to use different technologies to quote, liberate themselves from God and from his rule. And you mentioned everything from the tower of Babel, which is maybe the classic example from scripture uh, to slave ships in the Atlantic to even the crematoriums of the Nazis during World War II. So would you say that there are some technologies, uh, is, is this a correct application of what you've been saying? Are there some technologies that are inherently sinful or wrong for us to pursue because of their shaping power over us? It's a good question. I think it would depend on how we define technology. So there are certainly certain things that I think 
raise immediate inherent problems for Christians. And I don't want to be too specific on this for for listeners, but we can think of, you know, examples of whether or not you believe that like a certain app or a certain website, if you define that as a certain technology, yeah. well, then it becomes pretty apparent that, yes, there are some things clearly off limits for Christians. There are, you know, if you think about perhaps medically assisted suicide, a lot of Christians would have strong theological problems with that. Uh, and so if you view that as a particular technology, then that advances the conversation. Mm. If you take a kind of a more 50,000 foot view of technology, then I think that's a conversation that has a lot of nuance. Is technology defined and constrained by what you do with it? Or is there something more granular that you can't quite um say like this is always off limits Mm. but i think the point is is that even technology that's clearly not off limits for christians even that technology has an effect on us there's a wonderful book called about time and it's a basically a a cultural history of the clock and like uh, the the clock on your wall the clock the clock on your wall oh interesting so it starts in ancient greek culture uh with sundials and everything goes all the way up to the modern jet engines and the way they keep time and the, the iWatch and uh, mm-hmm. Apple Watch <laughs> and the, uh, you know, the, the watch on your phone. And it's a cultural history of the clock. And one of the interesting themes that the author pulls from that book is that the clock was used as a way of de- telling the people a certain kind of story about the world they lived in. So, for example, for one particular people who were subjected, who were subjugated and colonized, the large clock that their colonizers built in the middle of their community was a reminder of who they belonged to. Mm. And so you were on imperial time. Yeah, right. And, and it, this, the author kind of traces those kinds of things out. Th- and there's religious context to the use of the clock. There's economic implications of having a culture that is timed, yeah. basically. It's really interesting. So that's a good example of a completely neutral, uh, or I'm sorry, not neutral, of a completely acceptable morally techno- piece of technology that nonetheless mm. definitely communicates a vision of what it means to be a person to yes. us. I'm struck by two things as you talk about that. On the one hand, that so often our conversations about technology are so limited to quote-unquote digital technologies, uh, kind of the here and now of what we're experiencing in terms of technological progress. But really these principles, these big concepts that you're talking about uh, apply to any and every technology throughout all of human history. Uh, these things have been happening. But the second one is just how nuanced and how complicated in some ways this conversation is because it's not as simple as if we can just take a given technology, say a clock or a pencil or a smartphone and just tally up the good results and the bad results and kind of then make a determination. Right. This is good or this is bad. It's just there's so much more to it and so much, so much of it is is this subtle shaping of how we think about the world, how we view ourselves and other people. And that can be harder for us to to kind of uh, land the plane on. So that, that then kind of leads to maybe a, an overly simplistic kind of question, but I'll ask it anyways. Uh, oftentimes when talking about technology, uh, you have two camps. You have the tech optimists on the one hand who think that by and large technology is leading to human progress and development. It's leading to more flourishing both socially and economically and culturally. And then on the other hand, you have the tech pessimists who tend to say, at least today, a lot of these technological developments are are really dangerous and they're having this deleterious effect on our culture and society and we should really be careful about these things. 
I wonder, do you accept that paradigm, that kind of a question, <laughs> the spectrum there? And if you do, where would you put yourself on that yeah. spectrum? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I, so I think, I think simplistically that binary is true, you know, as binaries tend to be true in some ways and not true in other ways. You know, I feel a little bit like C.S. Lewis, who had a, a wonderful quote about duty, he was asked, like, what is the role of duty in the Christian life? And he said, well, he said, a perfect man would never need duty. A perfect man would always want to do the right thing. So he would never need this kind of emotional sense of obligation uh, because he would just do whatever he wanted and whatever he wanted would always be the right thing. That's, mm. that's what a perfect person would do. And so I kind of think of tech pessimism a little bit as the duty element in that. Like, it, to the degree that we are really being shaped by scripture, that we are really allowing the Lord to kind of set the terms of how we view ourselves, to the degree that we are growing in Christ and growing in grace toward each other, I think tech optimism can work and it makes sense. It's because we are fallen and because we don't tend to do that perfectly that we need this tech pessimism hmm. to kind of tether us to objective reality. So yeah, I, I think the tech optimism and the tech pessimism question is probably a question of which, which do you presume a little bit more? Do you presume that you are in a context that is um, really growing, uh, that is, you know, the people that you kind of interact with on a daily basis, you see a strong awareness of these digital liturgies and how they shape us? Or do you kind of see yourself in a context where those things are not as taken for granted and mm. there's a lot of confusion? And I think whether you describe yourself as a tech optimist or a tech pessimist will kind of depend on what you perceive the need is around mm. you. And so for me, in my context, because I'm not as sanctified as I should be <laughs> and, and because I, th I tend to see in my generation particular, particularly a proclivity toward falling off the far end of the spectrum of tech maximalism, I tend to be a little more tech pessimistic. But I think it's a question that depends yeah. primarily on what you perceive the need to be yeah. in your context. Yeah, I think context is really important um, for that and so many questions like that. But it, it does seem to me, though, if you kind of take the broadest view possible, it, it does feel like there's a growing cultural awareness, at least in the West and in the U.S. where we are, um, that some of these technologies that we kind of in the last decade or so ran headlong into and this gets us into the topic of social media which i want to talk about next some of these technologies that we kind of just uh, naively embraced and incorporated into every facet of our lives we're now starting to see the the damage that those have caused on our our society in particular on young people when it comes to social media and there's there's a certain kind of wake up to what's happening there. Uh, so let's let's talk about social media. Uh, one of the most interesting developments uh, when, with regard to thinking about social media for me came uh, in the middle of last year in May of 2022 when social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, many of our listeners might be familiar with him, he's written some books, writes lots of articles, but he wrote this incredible piece for The Atlantic yep. called why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. <laughs> yeah. How's that for a great, great, title. great title? And I want, but I want to quote a little bit from that article and hear you respond to that and hear how this connects into some of the points that you're making in your book. Height writes, in the first decade of the new century, social media was widely believed to be a boon to, to democracy. 
The high point of techno-democratic optimism was arguably 2011, a year that began with the Arab Spring, which was off, was fueled and organized mm -hmm. through social media tools, and ended with the global Occupy movement. This was also when Google Translate became available on virtually all smartphones. So you could say that 2011 was the year that humanity rebuilt the Tower of Babel. We were closer than we ever had been to, to being one people, and we had effectively overcome the curse of division by language. For techno-democratic optimists, it seemed to be only the beginning of what humanity could do. But then Haidt goes on and spends the rest of the article explaining how everything started to fall apart after that. Uh, how social media began to have this destabilizing, corrosive effect on our institutions, on our, our politics, and our discourse, and even our children, which is what we're seeing a lot of today, it seems. So what do you, did you read that article? What did you think about his argument there? And, and how does that perhaps illustrate what you're talking about? Yeah, I think that was a fantastic essay. I do think he underestimates in the context of that essay the power of these technologies in themselves. Toward the end of the essay, he prescribes a more uh, legislative response, like let's you know, let's kind of regulate these yeah. these corporations, which is which is the conversation happening right now right. with regard yeah. to TikTok and, yeah. and other platforms. And I, I think there's a place for that, but I think there's also an opportunity to say what he doesn't say, which is, hey, actually, these technologies have shaping effects in themselves, and regardless of whether you're 15 or whether you're 35 you need to be aware of this and this technology may actually be turning you into the type of person that you don't expect it to be. I think in the timeline that Haidt describes there, I think one thing that happens is that technology goes from tool to ambience. So I'm uh, particular internet technology. Hmm. So what, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So uh, what happens is uh, with the advent of the smartphone. So prior to the smartphone to access the internet, meant to go to a corner of a room to get onto a large machine that was literally connected to the wall. Yeah, I, I can hear the dial-up sound in that's my, right, my that's head. Right, that's right, that's yeah. you know? right. <laughs> and, you, you know, brothers and sisters would, like, fight for whoever could get yep. online first because it would tie up the phone line, right? Right, right. So, there was limits to, to what you could do. Absolute limits. So if you wanted to go online, you had to go do something. It was opt in. Mm. You had to opt in to going online. With the smartphone, that changes because now the smartphone brings the internet to your pocket. Now the smartphone is not relying on particular devices that are plugged into particular places that stay there mm. so that when you're done being quote unquote online, you get up from your chair, walk away and, and do you're something offline. else. And you're offline. No one's offline anymore. Yeah, we have push notifications. Now. We have push notifications. We have GPS tracking. You're, the internet is no longer opt-in. It's opt-out. You have to do something intentionally in order to not be online. That, so that's the difference between a tool to an ambience. A tool is something uh, in the context of the internet that you can stop doing, walk away mm. from, and then that tool stays where it is. And you know you're using the tool. When you got Absolutely. the hammer in your hand and you're pounding, you kind of are conscious of that fact. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so because the internet is now an ambience, it, there's really no escape from it. It shaped the way we expect each other to act, the way we expect institutions to act. Part of the problem, I think, of cancel culture, which is people are very interested in nowadays for good reason, is I think part of the reason is that my generation has grown up expecting that the way we encounter the world 
we can mute, we can block, we can delete. Mm. That technological experience of the world. On social media. On social media and, and broader computer technology in general. Yeah. But if, if you are accustomed to encountering the world through a technology that lets you delete, block, mute, or get rid of, then might that not condition how you expect other people to relate to you in offline life? Mm. This person is offending me. Why are they still here? Yeah. Because what you're thinking is I should be able to get rid of them. And it's not a conscious, it's not, you're not thinking I can do it on Twitter. So why can't I do it in real life? (laughs) Right. But it's, it's more subtle than that. Right. Right. You're not walking up to that person and trying to find the mute button. Yeah. (laughs) Sure. You know, but it does like what we said earlier, Technology trains you in what is the good life, what should be possible. And I think this is one area in which technology has Mm. trained us to expect that anything that makes us uncomfortable should not be allowed to exist. Because I have this sort of power over what I encounter when I get on digital technology. But it's the problem is that the digital technology has now informed how I live my offline life and culture can't work that Mm. way. So you call this training, uh, you call those experiences digital liturgies. Uh, that, that's the title of the book, and that's kind of the main focus of what you're looking at. Uh, what are these digital liturgies? What are some examples of those? You mentioned outrage culture and the way that we, yeah. we think we can kind of control what we have to be exposed to. What are some of the other things that, that we've been trained into thinking? Yeah, so uh, the first digital liturgy I talk about in the book is authenticity. So the idea of my story, my truth. On the internet and on the broader kind of web social media experience in particular, because we are disembodied and because we are encountering one another, not as whole persons, but as basically names and avatars, there's the need for a new social currency because I, I don't, if I just encounter you online, I don't necessarily know where you're from. I don't know your family. I don't know your credentials. So what is the social currency? Well, it turns out that the social currency of the internet is story. Whoever has the most compelling personal narrative wins the day. Why do you think that is? A couple of reasons. I think story engages the emotions uh, in a way that is very important online. Again, when you're talking about a disembodied space, you are talking about people who are engaging with one another primarily mentally. So I think the role of emotion becomes very important Mm. when you're talking about that. I think it's a symptom of expressive individualism. I think the internet is by far the most effective vehicle for expressive individualism, more so than education, more so than politics. I think it's the internet. And so what you have is you have a culture online where if what you have to say as a person doesn't match up with my felt experience, then your role is to be quiet and to learn from my felt experience. And so your knowledge, your arguments have to always be conditioned by my experience. Mm. And the same is true just down the line. And so that's how you end up with a situation where one of the primary influencers of the transgender revolution are social media apps like Tumblr. So if you read Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage, she talks specifically about how in her clinical research, so many of the teenagers who seem to be living perfectly normal gendered lives will come out to their parents as uh, having this kind of gender dysphoria or transgenderism. And what she finds is that almost all of them found a social media community. Mm. 
And the social media community not only influenced them to think this way, but it pre it prepared them against objection by saying, this is your felt experience. Your parents do not know mm-hmm. what they're talking about. Yeah. And your, your experience is king. Absolutely. Your experience is normative. Your ex- because that's what you own. That's what you own online. In the world of the internet, it's almost like a hyper democratic space because my degree means nothing mm. on social media. Yeah. My, my, and my employer means nothing to someone that I'm in an argument yeah. with on Facebook. Yeah. That those traditional forms of authority, I think Haidt talks about this in the essay, those traditional forms of expertise and authority don't matter online because it's a hyper-democratic, everyone gets the same amount of bandwidth as everybody else. Mm. So what really carries the day is if you're able to appeal to emotion and a sense of identity by having the most compelling mm. authentic narrative. It's so interesting that authenticity that is so prioritized and prized uh, in terms of these kinds of conversations. And yet at the same time, we, we many people have noted that the internet is one of the least authentic spaces. People right. are able to construct identities, construct presentation of themselves to the world that is totally detached from reality and it's actually less authentic in so many ways than actually sitting across from somebody where you can actually, you have to have a real conversation face to face. What do you make of that? That there is this kind of contradiction built right into that. Yeah, I think it's extremely unhealthy for us to be deeply emotionally tethered to a space in which we have no shared objective reality. And so your presentation of yourself is all I've got to go on. My presentation of myself is all yeah, I've my got to go on online. carefully chosen and, Absolutely. and Instagram filtered yeah. um, pictures. The rise of these Instagram filters is a great case in point where it's remarkable what can be done through these tools and it completely changes the way that people are presented. Yeah. Absolutely. I hesitate to tell this story, but I will tell it. So there was a, a particular experience that I had some time ago where um, this guy online had come at me a little bit for an opinion I had. And so we kind of sparred a little bit. A and good caveat is that you are pretty active on Twitter. I, I, and, I am. I'm, I'm so a recovering you, Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're not coming at this whole topic from this, you know, ivory tower. You, you, no. You, you actually are engaging in some of these uh, tools and platforms. Yeah. And, and so uh, go ahead. Yeah. No, this is a book I wrote to myself as much to anyone. Mm. So, but yeah, I, I had this encounter with this guy on Twitter and it got pretty like heated. I don't think I said anything that I regretted, but, but so fast forward a few months after that, he, he ended up blocking me by the way, just didn't like our, just didn't like our disagreement. Fast forward a few months. I randomly encounter this guy in a restaurant in person and in person. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I know that I see him in the restaurant and I just don't know if he recognizes me yet. So I'm thinking like, I'm just going to keep my head down. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to like, I'm not going to make a big deal. This, this is like, this never happens, but no, yeah. well, so this guy comes up to me and he is so nice. He's so polite and kind and like gives me his hand and we shake hands. He's like, Hey, I just wanted to meet you and let you know I'm this person. And, uh, you know, just you know, hope you're having a great day. And I was like, yeah, okay, great. I was like, yeah, yeah. Good to meet you. You know, and inside I'm thinking like, is this like a setup of some kind? Yeah. Like I'm getting <laughs> a little nervous, camera? but no, I mean, we have a totally pleasant exchange and then we go our separate ways. So I was like, okay, well, you know, maybe, you know, things cool down, maybe things change. So I was like, okay, well, let me go see his profile. I was still blocked. 
and it was like, okay, I think that's an example of how an internet self and an offline self don't always meet. They can diverge. They can diverge. Mm. And, and the question people always want to ask is, what's more real, my online self or my offline self? And my answer is yes. Mm. They're both real. It's just that your offline self and your online self are immersed in habitats that bring out particular elements of who yeah. you are. And I think the scary thing about that is that so often for most of us, probably for this guy that you were talking about, it's not intentional. We're, we're, not, we're not conscious of the fact that I'm cultivating one sense of self over here online and one sense of self with my family and my church and my friends in the real world. It happens under our radar almost Absolutely. unintentionally. Uh, have you found that in yourself even? Have you noticed that tendency? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think I have felt especially a an urge to be seen as the expert. So if there's a, if there's a new conversation, a new topic, like I'm like, man, I really need to get a hot take out there. Yeah. You know, there's that. So I don't have Instagram. So the, that element of it, I don't necessarily encounter. But for, for some people, it's Instagram and wanting to appear a certain way, having your family like all dressed up all the time. And it's like, oh man, this person's life is awesome. Like, why don't I have that? And for some people, it's a more kind of intellectual pride thing, mm. which I actually think may be more dangerous in the long run. It's just wanting to project to be a certain, kinds of per- a certain kind of person. And I think in my own heart, what I I've seen is that I turn to the internet to do this when I am most insecure about my life in that mm, way. Mm. So when I am feeling like I'm just not doing the, the it's good enough job as I want to be doing, or I haven't achieved enough as I want to achieve, my temptation is to turn to the internet and say, well, I can kind of control how people see me online. Right. And so if I do things a certain way, if I do things in a calculated enough manner i can get people to at least see me as the expert online even if the people i'm living with and working with and fellowshipping with offline don't have that impression yeah but you can you can cultivate a community of followers absolutely of subscribers of what have you online that that don't necessarily know the real you in the real world in fact it's probably better if Mm. you're wanting to do that so that people don't actually know the real you it, because if you show the real you, you'll probably lose followers yeah. because we're all sinners. Yeah, you're right? not quite as quite as impressive. No, no, yeah. nobody, nobody is as, as impressive as they are in real life. I'm tempted to go back to uh, the question of there was a conversation on, around Instagram a few years ago where uh, it was turning out that people were doing sponsored posts. But they weren't revealing. They weren't disclosing. They weren't disclosing it. So it was like they would take pictures of themselves like wearing these super expensive outfits or taking these super expensive trips. And it was that a company was like paying them to do this. (laughs) And it turned out that a lot of people weren't revealing that. And so it just looked like these luxurious lifestyles that were actually just commercials basically. Yeah, right. And that's – that is actually more true of the internet than it's not true. That most of what we present to the internet is a kind of commercial of the self. Mm, mm. Okay, so we've talked about authenticity. We've talked about outrage a little bit. Another one of the digital liturgies that you highlight in the book. Uh, a third one is shame. Yeah. What do you mean by that? So the place of forgiveness is crucial to the Christian life. So the idea that because we're all sinners, because we are all at the mercy of God who 
we offend with our sin, that we ought to be merciful with each other, right? That's in the Lord's prayer. Forgive us our, our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. On the internet, however, the digital liturgy of what we talked about earlier of just having kind of like this godlike control over everything you encounter, it leads not only to a kind of cancel culture or to a, uh, to a kind of controlling of our environment, but it leads to kind of this punishing moral one where if somebody tells a joke that offends us, or if somebody uh, does something or says something that really bothers us, then we kind of feel a permission to make this person go away. Mm. And the, the illustration that I, I lead with in the book is a little interesting because it's, it's an illustration from a journalist and her encounter with what she calls shame culture uh, in the er- kind of the earlier days of the internet. And, uh, and, and she was on, she was on television uh, and an ex-boyfriend was on a panel with her and the ex-boyfriend basically on a C-SPAN panel that was about politics starts just ripping into his ex-girlfriend mm. who's right there and just saying all kinds of like mean and nasty things about her. And like the audience is kind of like in shock, like we don't know what to do. Well, of course it goes viral. And so she ends up being the butt of comments that say like what a horrible person she must be like what a, and so she had no intention of getting into that in front of millions of people, but it just happened. And so she talks about her, how disorienting that experience was of, of being the target of so much online shaming. And it, it seems to me that the digital liturgy of shame is a direct kind of modern replacement for repentance and redemption. Mm. So because we don't have in our cult, in our expressive individualist culture, because we don't have the categories of sin and redemption, what we do is we outsource this inherent feeling that we have. Yeah. So there's a true recognition there that there is such a thing as sin and transgression, but there's just not the tool to deal with it. It's always projected outward. Yeah. So it's always projected onto groups. It's always projected onto institutions the, but the problem of sin is way more personal according to the gospel, right? Mm. And so what we do is we project the problem of sin onto other things. And then what we say is, well, there's no redemption for you. Once you're on the bad side, you have to go away now. You have to be mm. destroyed basically yeah. in, in our culture. Out yeah, the... absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that is a, that is a direct result of how we have jettisoned the concept of sin, of atonement, of forgiveness in our society. And there's a wonderful essay called The Strange Persistence of Guilt by Wilfred McClay, which I really think is an essential piece of writing where he kind of examines this at length. Like what happens when you have people who feel guilty because we have consciences and our consciences convict us, but they are told from an early age that the guilt they feel is a psychological malady and that the real problem is outside out of them. there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so wow. Uh, so another, another digital liturgy you talk about is consumption. Yeah. What is that? We've all been there, right? We've just scrolling, right? yeah. just scrolling, scrolling. You look up and it's like midnight. And mm. you're like, what when just I, happened? When I sat down, it was, you know, like nine thirty. like <laughs> what happened? Yeah. It's just this mindless consumption. We even have, we have language for it. Right. So we talk about binging, Netflix. We talk about binging social media. Mm. There's even a uh, like a, a pornographically shaped uh, lingo on the internet where even things that are not pornography are called 
something porn. Mm. So if you want to go watch earth porn, it's basically just pictures of earth. Yeah. Right. If you want to see food porn, it's just pictures of food. But the idea is that you are consuming this content just passively. Yeah. And kind of excessively perhaps. Yeah. 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 So you're just like, okay, I, I could go outside and I could see nature. I'm just going to, I'm just going to scroll pictures of earth. I could take my wife to a restaurant, but I'm just going to scroll pictures of food. Yeah. So everything kind of becomes pornographically shaped on Mm. the internet to where it's the secondhand consumption. So that's one of the the most interesting things about all of this is that the internet, it is a endless stream of interesting things. Like there's just, there is so much there to consume and so much of it is interesting. So how how should we think about that? Um, Because I think we, we, we know that it's not healthy for us to just sit there and binge and scroll endlessly and yet we, we feel ourselves drawn back towards it all the time because there's just always something interesting to look at. Yeah. Comedian Bo Burnham has a has a song called Welcome to the Internet. And the hook of the song is, welcome to the internet. This is everything, everywhere, all of the time. Mm. So this is, it's just like this absolute fire hose of existence that's coming at us constantly. So I think I think the temptation there is that we can often turn to passive consumption to give ourselves like a self therapy when we're feeling anxious or we, when we don't really want to just kind of rest in silence. We, yeah. we, want, we want some noise to drown out the insecurity or the wrestling with feelings. And then I think sometimes it's honestly just, we get into a habit of it. It's just so easy to just scroll and just stream. Yeah. It's funny. I found myself uh, sometimes I'll have my phone open. I'll be looking at something uh, I'll close the web browser or what have you, or I'll close the podcast app. And then, you know, I find myself seconds later pulling my phone back out and I just open it almost instinctively. Yeah, I, absolutely. I've seen how it just, it's, it's not even conscious. It just happens. Right. Yeah. You're not even, in many cases, I'm not even looking for something. It's just, I just open it. Mm. Like I just open the tab or go back to the website or refresh the page or, or whatever. There's a film called this, the social network, which is this dramatization of the founding of Facebook and the last scene. Uh, I don't know if you remember this. The last scene of the film is him just refreshing his page to see if his ex-girlfriend has accepted his friend request. So there's kind of like this, this personal thread through it, but it's also like the scene of somebody just mindlessly hitting refresh mm. is just utterly symbolic of what these technologies have tended to unleash in the broader culture Mm. is that we're all just passively waiting for something to fill the void. Mm. And once you get hooked on that, it's very difficult and it's counterintuitive to peel yourself away from it. It just becomes so, so essential. Andrew Sullivan, who's a journalist wrote an essay several years ago called, I used to be a human being. And he was talking about encountering and dealing with the way that his phone and his internet addiction had completely ruined his ability to read, to be silent, to just kind of lay in peace, to, to be okay with alone with his thoughts. But this, he got addicted to the noise. Mm. It was just constant. He just needed this constant new input. And so the title of that article, I think, is just so revealing. I used to be a human being. We know that something is off with the way we're using this technology. It makes us stressed. It makes us frustrated. But we often can't articulate why. Yeah. I was going to say, the the constant consumption of this, this information, this media, these videos and these audio clips and uh, posts they're not satisfying. Like we don't, we don't feel, oftentimes we feel actually very unsatisfied and we, we feel a sense of, oh, that was not, that was not what it was supposed to be. And yet it's so hard to actually break the addiction. Yeah. Yeah. How many times have you 
gotten up from your desk or your chair and been like, man, that Instagram session or that Twitter session was awesome. Yeah, like I just yeah. feel so edified. I feel like my mind is just so focused. Oftentimes what we're just doing is we're, we're doing it out of habit. We're doing it mindlessly. And then what happens is exactly what you said, just with pornography, it kind of leads to this sense of frustration. Like, I mean, I know I should do better. That's kind of what it, it, it leaves us with. It mm. leaves us this sense that we didn't get what we were looking for, but we don't really know how to stop looking there. Mm, yeah. Uh, so that kind of uh, then connects into something you talked about before and just the the issue of our bodies and how these technologies can tempt us into thinking that we can transcend our bodies, that we don't need to be bound by any bodily limits, whether that's geography or attention or, or what have you. Uh, but you argue that one of the problems that we're facing, even as Christians in particular, is we lack a robust theology of the body. We don't have an appreciation for the, the importance, the significance of having uh, an embodied existence from God. So what does that lack of understanding look like in practice? Help us see where we all might be uh, expressing a deficient theology of the body. Yeah, I, it's a great question. I think our tendency as evangelicals is to put so much emphasis on our spirits and our minds that we forget that we are embodied people. Uh, and I think one real example of this is the, ten- the, uh, the advent of digital church services. So when I talk to people who stream their churches, not just like when they're sick, but, yeah. but all the time. They kind like of said, this, this is my church now. Yeah, this is kind of replacing going to church. When I talk to people who are in that mentality, every time they say the same thing. And that is, I can hear the sermon from here. And so what they're saying when they say that is that going to church is mental downloading of information. And if I can mentally download information from my living room, why can't I? Why can't I? Why yeah, shouldn't I? That, that's more efficient. Right. And the, the question of like, well, actually, no, it matters for you to be in church because you are with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And not only that, but you are physically present in a habitat, a a, a liturgical habitat that is actually showing you the gospel. It's not just mental download. It's communion. It's baptism. It's singing. It's fellowship. It's praying with other people. These things are are conscious forming just just like the internet is. And I think part of the reason that we're seeing more people say, well, I can just stay at home and watch church, is that they haven't been taught that to think of themselves as human bodies that are uh, embodied spirits. Mm. They've been trained to think of themselves as spirits, as that this is a wholly mm. disembodied thing. Or, or even spirits with bodies. Or spirits with but bodies. Like, but we're fundamentally right, yeah. spirits. Right, that fake C.S. Lewis quote that goes viral. Every, uh, what is that one? Uh, it's, it's, we are not, you don't have a soul you are a soul, you have a body, totally fake. Uh. Uh, not, a, not a real C.S. Lewis quote. <laughs> so if you see somebody attributing that to C.S. Lewis, you can say that's not that's Samuel not James told me that wasn't real. That's right. That's right. Uh, right. So it's we tend to think of ourselves as essentially souls and our bodies are problems to overcome. Yeah, or the, the vehicle that carries us around in The this vehicle life. that just carries us around. But eschatologically, that's not true, right? Uh, we're going to have resurrection bodies. We are going to be embodied creatures forever. 
the Lord is going to the Lord is going to make us just like Him, and the Lord Jesus right now is sitting on His throne on the right hand of the Father, embodied. Hmm. He has a body. Uh, that is the ultimate vindication of our bodies. And what that means is that our bodies are blessings to embrace, not obstacles to try to transcend. Mm. But how does that how does that fit then? How do we know where the limits of where technology is becoming uh, this vehicle for transcending our bodies? I think of even something as simple as Jesus. Jesus rode a donkey. Yeah. A donkey, in a sense, and the saddle that he was sitting on is a form of technology sure. that helped him in some, some definitions, transcend the limits of his physical body. Sure. That allowed him to travel further without getting as tired, perhaps. So how do we think about, that's where the crux is, is how do we bring together and affirm the our bodies and the, our, our embodiedness, but also use technology wisely? Absolutely. And there are more examples than that, right? The nets to catch fish yeah. or you know something like that. It's a great question. And I think Andy Crouch has really nailed this distinction when he talks about the difference between devices and instruments. He says instruments are pieces of technology that exist to extend a person's real physical capabilities in an embodied context. So for example, an instrument would be a bicycle. So the bicycle is clearly a piece of technology that amplifies what you can do, but you're still involved with pushing the pedals. You are physically involved in that technology. And that technology basically serves to center and amplify you as a whole person. Hmm. A device is different. A device uses technology to essentially replace human involvement. Uh, So this would be an example of AI, right? So the difference between those kinds of technologies are that one kind of technology still helps us to be whole embodied persons mm. and it just helps us to do it in a way that's beneficial to us to other people but then the other kind of technology the devices those tend to promise us that if we will actually recede into the background as whole persons if we will kind of let technology take over then we can get what we want even more easily mm. uh, on that point in one of the most insightful quotes from the book uh, one of your most I had to stop and kind of just think for a little while about what you said you talk about how digital devices in particular and the, and the worlds that we can create through them, the disembodied digital worlds that we can create and inhabit through them, that they have this way of causing us to desire digital sleep mm. rather than real world wakefulness. Un- unpack that. What is digital sleep? When I think of technology, I tend to think of, I mean, internet technology in particular, I tend to think of this kind of passive, this totally inert sense that I want the world to come to me Mm. on my screen. And if I'm insecure about how I look, if I'm insecure about the kind of job I have or the kind of house I live in, the kind of person I am, then the, the answer is for me to whip out my digital technology and then this will keep me safe from people judging me, from me being insecure. I can encounter the world just the way I want to. I can reveal myself to the world in just the way I want to. And I think what that is, it's basically this retreat. It's a sleep. It's a, it's, I don't want to engage with the body that the Lord gave me or the life mm. that the Lord has given me or the responsibilities that he's given me right here. I, I'd rather dream. You, you reference, I think in the context of the book, you're talking about um, the film. Um, Inception. Inception, yeah. Christopher Nolan. Yeah. For those who haven't seen it, if you haven't seen it, you should 
probably go see it. Absolutely. Uh, what's the premise there and how does that fit into this? Yeah. So there's a scene, uh, well, the premise of the film is that at some point in the future, there's a technology called dream sharing. And what they can do is they can give you a sedative and they can connect you to a device and people can actually enter your dreams. Like you can share dreams. You can share dreams together. and like your subconsciouses are like talking to each other and that's a way to get information from people that they've buried in their subconscious. And so there's one particular scene in the film where the protagonists are taken to the basement of the man who makes the sedative. And what they see in the basement is dozens of people who are kind of like lying in cots, all connected to these dream sharing devices. And they say, well, like, well what's going on here? And they say, well, they all come down here to sleep and to dream together for hours on end each day. And one of the characters says, they come here to fall asleep? And the maker of the sedative, the chemist says, no, they come here to wake up. The dream has become their reality. Mm. And so the idea that this digital sleep can actually become what we feel is most real, mm. most important. This is where we live. This is where our emotions are invested. Is such a real danger and a temptation for us in a technological age. Yeah, so the question is not are we going to live in a digital age because we definitely are and will continue to do that. The question is will we be wakeful in, a, in an age where it's so easy to fall asleep? Mm. You argue in the book that one of the, the fundamental differences between a Christian worldview found in the Bible and, and the worldview cultivated by so many of these technologies around us is that Christians believe that uh, we can't construct our reality. We can't go into our dreams and, and corrupt a sense of self and identity for ourselves uh, that we then control, but rather that we we try to cling, I think is the word that you use, to the meaning that we've already been given, to the reality that God has imposed on us. But to many to many in our culture today, I think that is a really countercultural idea. The idea that our the meaning for our lives, the reality that we have to be defined by our identities is something that's given to us rather than something that we control or build. Speak to the person who maybe wouldn't put in that language, but but nevertheless feels like there is truth in that though. Uh, I don't love the idea of being controlled or bound or restricted by a meaning that someone is imposing on me. How can that actually be good news that we are in these ways controlled or restricted? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the essence of what it means to be free is to be free to be exactly who you were made to be. So the question of freedom and the question of identity is tied to our creation. So whatever we are meant to be, whatever we are created to be, the closer we get to that, the freer we will be. So just like a piece of technology is a desirable piece of technology to the degree that it, it fulfills exactly what its creator wants it to do, that's kind of the same thing with human beings. We are created for a purpose. We are created with purpose and intentionality. And the closer we get to that, the more freedom and the more purpose and the, and the deeper our identity will become in our own minds. Mm. Uh, it's not a question of inventing our, our identity. It's a question of finding it and yeah. receiving it. So I'm struck that that definition of freedom and in, in, in what you just said, freedom is sort of defined as we're free to be who we were made to be. Yeah. Well, whereas it seems like the world's definition today is freedom is not having been made to be anything. Right. Freedom is exactly. fundamentally about not having to conform to something that, that someone said about us. 
So, so how do we think about that difference? That's it's a pretty fundamental yeah. different definition there. Well, it hasn't led to greater self-fulfillment. I mean, we are, we are a digital age. We are an expressive individualist age where I, as a person sitting here in 21st century America, have almost a limitless ability to curate my identity and very little uh, things in my way. Um, the average person, same is true of them. It, it's made us miserable. It's mm. made us exhausted. One thing I like to tell pastors and people who are ministering to the current generation is get rid of the idea that the average millennial is just this totally self-satisfied, like impenetrable, can't be reached with the gospel person because the opposite is true. Mm. There is a lot of woundedness. There's a lot of tiredness. There's a lot of exhaustion. There's a lot of search for something yeah. else. I think in, it's so interesting in all the the tech optimism uh, language that sometimes these tech leaders, you know, will kind of spout. Now uh, there's this utopian ideal that is often put forward that these technologies, this, this, these abilities that we are offered uh, are going to lead to happiness and joy and personal freedom and expression and, and deeper community. But it does seem like that's the case that feels like there is so much anxiety today, so much yep. depression and discouragement and social breakdown today in part because of these technologies Absolutely. that have promised the opposite. Yeah, I think if listeners want to check out the work of someone named Jean Twenge, uh, she wrote a book called iGen, and she's very active in this kind of sociological research. And some of the data that they've uncovered about when depression and anxiety, when these things have, have started to peak with millennials and younger, they really trace it to the late 2000s, in 2008 to 2010 in particular, which is the advent of the iPhone. Mm. Um, and the idea there is that that's not a coincidence. That's not an accident. That when this technology became ambient, when it became something that we could take with us wherever we went, the result was not just limitless freedom and satisfaction, but we actually found ourselves oppressed by these technologies. Mm. And I think that's part of what comes when we are trying so hard to craft our own identity, when we want to kind of control our environment. We just realize that we can't. That's the problem. We can't. We're not God. We can't actually give ourselves an identity. We can't control our world. And so the most we can do is to kind of immerse ourselves into our technology to make us forget that fact, hmm. digital sleep. And so what, in those moments where we're awake, when we have to encounter the world as it really is, we realize that we're finite, we're broken, we're limited, we're sinful, and we need more than technology. We need, uh, we need a savior to, to transform us from the inside out. Hmm. What would you say to the Christian listening uh, who accepts all that you're saying and, and wants to embrace the value of our embodied relationships, but feels like they're constantly swimming against the tide in that, that feels frustrated and even uncertain how to move forward when so much of our online our online communities are happening online, that they, it requires just yeah. to live in our world today requires plugging in to the matrix, so to speak, yeah. in ways that like feel inherently damaging or at least dangerous? Yeah, it's a great question. So Thomas Chalmers, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. So if you if you want to, um, which by the way, we might edit this out, but I don't know if you've read Atomic Habits by yeah. James Clear. Yep. So what does he say? Best way to get rid of a bad habit? Develop a good habit. Replace it with a good habit. It's like this guy's writing scripture and theology doesn't even know it. Huh. But anyway, say, um, Thomas Chalmers, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The If you want to create a new way of living and feeling don't primarily focus and start with what you have to get rid of start with what you have to add in so you know for any of us 
Christians who are feeling like, yeah, I just, I, I, I want to have, I want to have this kind of existence, but it's just so hard because I live in a digital age. Don't focus on that. I, I think the key is to start building these healthy habits into our daily rhythms as much as it's in our power. And, and I don't want, I don't think people should be motivated by guilt and shame here. I don't think, I don't think that's going to build the, the life that the Lord is looking from, for, for in each of us. I think what we have to do is we have to be captivated by this vision of what it means to be whole people uh, in Scripture. And if, as, if that really captivates our hearts, I think we're going to take measures to gravitate toward that. And I think, I think it can be simple as, hey, give that person a call, not just a text. Or go out to lunch with that person. Don't just like check in on their profile mm. and see how they're doing. Talk about that texting and calling thing. That's something that I know <laughs> I've experienced and I've heard many other people give voice to that, that um, there's this preference. There's this like lack of comfort with talking on the phone, even, yeah. which is which is a pretty disembodied type of thing to do. But even that is like too much for us. And so instead we prefer to just send a text. Yeah, I, I've thought about that a lot and... Look, I, on one hand, I get it, right? Like, I get it that it's when you have to talk to a person on the phone, you kind of have to deal with awkward silences. Mm-hmm. You kind of have to, like, try to listen to their intonation and kind of that sort of thing. There's also the asynchronous dynamic, too, yeah, where sure. you can send a text anytime and they can read it and respond anytime. Right. right. Yeah. And if you call somebody at 1130 at night, like, you're probably not going to yeah. <laughs> get a good conversation <laughs> out of that. Um, but, again, I think because we are embodied people, we communicate with more than just our mental words, right? We communicate with our voices. So if you and I went out to lunch and we're talking about how each of us are doing in our, in our marriages and our kids, like I can text you, Hey, how's everything going? And you can text back good. And as far as I know, you either said that as good or good. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. Yeah. But if I ask you over lunch, like, you know, how's life going? How's, how's church going? How's work going? And you go, Good. Yeah, you hear the pause. You hear the pause. Yeah. And then you get the kind of like, do I want to go into this, you mm. know? And n- now that may or may not be a cue depending on our relationship, but what you've just done is you have communicated using your whole self that actually maybe something is not that great and maybe you'd actually really like to talk about it. And that is what we completely miss with these technolo- technological ways of communication that strip us of our voice, mm. that strip us of our embodied personality. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned habits a few minutes ago and it leads me to one of my final questions when it comes back to what it looks like for us to push back as Christians yeah. against these digital liturgies that, that threaten to kind of overtake our lives, maybe already have in so many ways. We all, we've all felt the frustration and the failure of trying to do that and failing over and over again. We've all been there. Uh, you talk about how Uh, When it comes to breaking the bonds of these kinds of addictions to technologies, uh, you write about your experience. For most of my life, I believe that the way uh, meaningful transformation works is this. I earnestly pray and try to generate strong feelings, the right feelings. And then once I have these strong feelings and they're achieved, doing the right thing will feel natural. (laughs) Yeah. And yet you say that you've come to discover that, that that way of thinking about change for us it misses a really important biblical theme, maybe the key or, or a key to actually making progress. So what is that missing key and why are we so often missing it? 
Yeah. I think the missing key is habit, right? So it's, it's the missing key is the idea that there are particular practices that I need to put into place that will actually train my affections. So um, we tend to think of change as being um, starting emotionally and then going outward. Or we might not even say emotionally, starting spiritually. We, you know, we think sure. even in our circles, perhaps, the answer is, is quote-unquote, the gospel. It's, right. it's loving God more. It's uh, a repenting of our sin more or, or better. So how, how is that not the right answer? Well, I, I, may, I think it is the right answer, but I think we need to avoid a reductionistic understanding of the gospel. So the gospel is not simply mental information that I can download. And like now that you've downloaded that mental information, go and do likewise. The gospel is the, gospel is the good news that, G, that God became a human with a human body. Jesus Christ is embodied uh, he was embodied when he was on earth, he was embodied at the cross, and he's embodied forevermore, resurrected. So the gospel is an affirmation of who we are as whole persons. Not only that, but the gospel tells us that this embodied self is actually created in God's image. It's a good thing that we ought to steward. So I think the answer really is the gospel, but it's not simply just think these thoughts and you'll be fine. It's about hey, look, the Bible gives us practices. It gives us spiritual disciplines. So, you know, in the Old Testament, the Lord didn't just write the Ten Commandments on stone and say, okay, now you guys figure out how best to obey this and Mm. you're on your own. The Lord gave them festivals. The Lord gave them a Sabbath. The Lord gave them particular types of clothing. He gave them a tabernacle and later a temple. Even the sacrificial system. Even the sacrificial system. Yeah. Right. The Lord surrounded his people with events and physical rituals that they they didn't contain salvation in themselves. Mm. But what they did was they continually pressed home on the hearts of the worshipers the promises of God. And that's what we have as New Testament people. We have spiritual practices that press that on our heart. And primarily, the, uh, the one is corporate worship, is assembling together in the local church. Not simply to just check it off our list or to mentally download the sermon, but to encounter one another, mm. brothers and sisters in the Lord, to see visual manifestations of the gospel take place. And I really think that for most Christians, the place to start is there. If you're wanting if you're wanting to have a more humane approach to your life, start with the people who you are around every Sunday. Ask those people out to lunch. Be there on Sunday morning. Invest in those relationships. Create that sense of embodied connection with those people because that is the spiritual practice that the Lord gives us. And, and there are other things too as well. Obviously, a personal scripture reading, personal prayer. Even during corporate worship, there are two particular uh, physical practices that that very directly teach us the gospel, uh, baptism, the Lord's Supper. Absolutely. And if anybody wants to read a really good book about that, our colleague Kevin Emmert has a mm. book coming out called uh, The Water and the Blood, which I highly recommend, uh, specifically about how those two practices shape us as Christians. Mm. But yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, our church worship services are given to us from Scripture as physical places, as physical habitats uh, that shape us. Mm. So I think that's where our attention needs to go first and foremost. So why is it, if that's if that's true, if from the very beginning, going all the way back to the ancient Israel, but even through to the New Testament church, the Christian religion has been irreducibly embodied. How is it that we've lost sight of that, that we've lost an appreciation for that fundamental facet of our faith and the way that that shapes us? 
It's a really good question. And I, I don't know that I can answer that question fully. I, I would love to read something that kind of talked about exactly that. I suspect, though, that part of the issue has been that we've over-spiritualized the gospel primarily to make it more efficient. And so in, or, in order to kind of help our evangelistic efforts, in order to kind of feel like we're growing the kingdom, you know, we kind of reduce discipleship to, okay, are you going to make a decision to follow Christ now? Okay, check this box on this card. And I'm not, I'm not saying there's no place for that kind of thing. Yeah. I am saying that I think it is possible to focus so much on are we eliciting people's kind of emotional reaction and then can we get them to say yes when we ask them the key question and then we just leave it at that. Mm. We don't really disciple them into what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so I think downstream from that is where we just kind of focus on the world of the mental and just mental ascent and redefining the Christian life to be this purely mental exercise. But I think the Lord, I think honestly, the Lord's day, the corporate worship service is a reminder every week uh, that we are physical people. Mm. And I think no matter maybe the contours of church history that have made us tend to minimize that in our own tradition, I think we fight back against it every Sunday if we're doing it biblically. Yeah. It's fascinating because even this is like a great microcosm of what we started our conversation talking about, the way that technologies can subtly, even good technologies that do good things for us can subtly shape us in ways that are sub-Christian. I think of even the way that preaching can, through the advent of whether it was radio uh, in years past or the internet today and the ability to stream uh, sermons from across the the globe, um, that has led to so many good things. And yet it also can maybe reinforce certain ideas about what church is and, sure. and what its pur- purpose is that are not, not right. Yeah. And like we said earlier, the task on us is not to pretend to live in a world without these technologies. It's to name the world for what it is. It's to say that these technologies are doing this and I will live in this world, but I will not be of it. Hmm. Uh, it I will not have my conscience shaped primarily by these technologies. I will believe what scripture tells me about what it means to be a human created in God's image, what it means to be a follower of a risen Christ. And I will pursue that in community with other yeah. people. Maybe uh, as a final, final set of questions, I'd love to do a lightning round with you, sure. Samuel. Here are your kind of quick off the cuff response to some of the, uh, maybe uh, the most pressing questions, at least for me, when it comes to some of these technological topics. Uh, all right. First question, what's the worst social media platform out there? And why do you say that? TikTok. TikTok. Uh, it's, it's irredeemable. (laughs) (laughs) It's, uh, it's, it's mindless. It's all the bad digital liturgies rolled up into one. Hmm. All right. What might social media look like 10 years from now? That's a great question. Uh, I tend to think it's going to be more interactive. It's probably going to use more like augmented reality, maybe even some virtual reality. Uh, it's going to be more convincing in its replication and replacement of is, is that a good thing? In some ways, does that does that promise to bring more of the the nuances of physical embodiment to... It seems like that's what's behind a lot of this is, you know, I want you to be able to stand there and look at a whole avatar in front of you and see their gestures and see their facial expressions. Could that be a good thing? But it's not really their gestures. Hmm. It's not really their facial expressions. Yeah. It's their, you know, it's their image of themselves. Like, it's an image that you have control over. Hmm. You can craft it. So I, I think... 
We'll see about what these technologies can actually do, but I tend to think that this will leave us where we are. Yeah. Should we be afraid of AI? And if so, what exactly should we be afraid of? I don't know if afraid is the right word. I think we should be mindful of AI, and I think we should be mindful of it precisely because AI often comes from a worldview that seeks to replace human involvement with technological uh, achievement. So, um, yeah, I think we should be mindful. I, I don't know. I don't like saying we should be afraid of it. Uh, yeah, I, I think honestly, I kind of wish more people would realize that we are the creators. We have power over this. Mm. We can junk it if we want to. Yeah. There's no cosmic law that says we have to produce this technology. So when it comes to mitigating all of the the damaging effects of these digital technologies on our society, what's the right balance between personal responsibility and, and some of the things you've talked about even as a Christian in your book and government intervention helping to, yeah. to control things? What would you say is the right balance there? I think government intervention is appropriate in many uh, situations. I don't believe that 12-year-olds should just be able to access these platforms and to be able to bring their iPhones to school and everything like that. I think we should show some will for the common good there. Uh, at the same time, legislative examples uh, or legislative efforts are not going to help us become whole people. They are they can be uh, exertions of our political will for the common good, but they're not going to solve spiritual problems. Mm. And so this starts, I think, at a individual family level, uh, and then it goes to a church level. And then we can kind of talk about bringing people in from levels of power to help, especially protect vulnerable people like children from these platforms. Mm. What do you think about taking technology fast, so to speak, from time to time? Have you ever tried that? Do you think that's a helpful way to think about this? I think it is. I, I honestly think that's probably the most, the simplest and most straightforward thing that most of us can do. You know, a lot of people for their work, they can't just delete their accounts, right? Yeah. Uh, so, but one thing they can do is they can they can take breaks and go they, on vacation they can and go and, on vacation. Don't bring any crouch in his book, the tech wise family, which is a great book. I think the system he recommends that, in, that he presents as hit what his family does is uh, one hour every day, one day every week and one week every month or year. I can't remember that last part, but it, it's the idea of just these kind of incremental breaks. So like start with one hour a day and then go to one day a week where you're not checking your phone. You're uh, and Christians have a great day of the week where <laughs> that, yeah. that could, you know, that comes ready-made for us, right? Sunday. Um, so yeah, just start there. Take breaks. Um, one thing I do is I give my wife my Twitter password and I say, change my password and hold on to it for a few weeks. Let me just take a break. And we do that for each other. I have her Instagram password. She has my Twitter password. And we're kind of like partners in crime in mm. this because we know each other's tendencies. We've talked to each other so many times. Like, I'm so tired of this. Like, I, I think I'm slipping back into the wormhole again. Like, can you just change my password? And, and, mm. uh, and But, but yeah. being willing to go that extreme because changing a password makes it so you literally cannot get into it without her giving yeah. you that access. I think that's a, a good principle there that sometimes maybe to borrow a phrase from Jesus, we have to be willing to cut off our arm sure. or poke out our eye yeah. to avoid that temptation and not think it's uh, not as big a deal as it actually is. And I think we would be surprised to find how many people around us might be willing to do it with us too. Mm. I think we, we tend to think that we're the only ones who have problems moderating or we're the only ones who feel exhausted. I think it's 
lot of us. And mm. so I, I think, you know, going out to lunch with somebody and saying, hey, why don't we help each other take uh, a month off from our social media platforms? Honestly, I think you'd find a lot of people who'd be very excited about that. Mm. All right. When do you plan to let your kids get a smartphone? Oh, man. So my kids are uh, six, four, and six months. Not for a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I tend to think that the phone question in general should not probably arrive before the driver's license. And I don't, there's probably some listeners who are upset about what I just said and be like, <laughs> how am I supposed to keep track when they're at school? And you know, that's, and I get it. I'm, I'm not, this is not dogmatic. This is not like thus saith the Lord, Yeah. but it's, that seems to be a fairly clean thing and i know some families that you know will give their kids phones that are totally locked down yeah. except to call mom and dad some kind except, of dumb phone or yeah, something some kind like of dumb that. phone and i think there are there are solutions like that that are uh, good ideas but i do think that one of the things i'm trying really hard as as a parent of very young children is to give my children memories of a at least partially screen free childhood hmm. so that they'll be able to th think back on growing up and being think about the games that they played with mom and dad or the the pretend that they played with each other and because I have those memories too like you and I are similar age we're kind of at that generation that saw all this technological advancement yeah. in social media and so you and I can think back to growing up without these things yeah. and that's something that we treasure but it's interesting that younger generations maybe don't have that experience it's I actually know. a very different yeah. world than it was even 20 years ago yeah yeah and it, it feels a little bit to me at least like the circle is closing a little bit that uh, the generation that came after us is more willing to say, why do I have to have this? Mm. Why do I have to have this phone? I think it's people like you and I, our age, that our lives were changed so much by these devices that we just went all in. Mm. And I think that our kids' generations are probably going to have a little bit more yeah. of a sober-mindedness yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah. All right, last question. If you had to pick one piece of practical advice for our listeners, people who are adequately sobered by this conversation, uh, beyond picking up a copy of your book and, and reading that, because it is a wonderful, helpful book, wise book, alerting us to some of these things, what would be that practical piece of advice for maybe a next step? What can I do today or tomorrow to help take steps toward more biblical wisdom in the face of this? Uh, buy three copies of the book. I'm just kidding. <laughs> give, give away a couple. Yeah. Uh, no, I, th I think a great first step would, if for all of us, is to go to somebody who knows us, who loves us, who has some kind of presence in our lives, and say, hey, can you be honest with me for one second? How do you think I'm doing on this? Do I seem distracted? Do I seem discontented? Do I seem mad? Do I seem just like passive in my consumption. Be honest with me. Like what kind of person do you feel like I am in these things and have an honest conversation with somebody. And that person might have to say some hard things and say, Hey, like, yeah, I, I feel like you're kind of always on your phone or you're, you don't really respond when people ask for help on stuff. Or I think you're ignoring your kids. Ooh, like that's, mm. that's where it's really so you gotta, getting personal. Don't ask if you're not ready to, don't ask to, if you're not, that. yeah. It, well, if you're not ready to hear hard truths, then go to Jesus yeah. and, mm. <laughs> and pray that you'll be ready to hear hard truths because we all need to hear hard truths. But I think that would be a great first step. And then, but then second of all, you know, don't get bogged down in shame. Once you hear those hard truths, trust in the gospel. The gospel is 
right. It's the opposite of shame culture, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, you are guilty of this. Then you need to go away. It's you are guilty of this. Jesus Christ took your penalty on the cross. He died. He rose again. He's King forever. And now he is his spirit living inside of you Mm -hmm. to grow, to be more like him. Run with that, claim that forgiveness, claim that power to live well in light of the gospel. And yeah, yeah, pursue it from there. Yeah. Don't forget the gospel as we pursue these habits. Never. All right. Well, Samuel, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with us and and offer us some of this good, important wisdom for living in this world today. Thanks, Matt. Enjoyed it. That was Samuel James on technology and its shaping power on our lives. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Digital Liturgies, Rediscovering Christian Wisdom in an Online Age. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off or get the ebook or audiobook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org/plus. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.